I was back last Sunday, but to be back in the pulpit is a, a special privilege, and I appreciate uh, certainly the time away as we uh, enjoyed uh, some camping uh, in Maine. I always, enjoy, I always sort of enjoyed telling people we're, we're going to be camping for two weeks, and their eyes would get, two weeks? Have you ever camped before? No, we haven't camped. And it went well. It went well. There were, there were uh, no misadventures. It was only a grand adventure. So thanks for the time away, and it's good to be back. Uh, please uh, join me in prayer before we hear uh, the word from Psalm 86 read. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that there are milestones in our lives that we can mark and, and count as significant. We thank you for uh, the work of grace in uh, the lives of, of Jiggly and of Nathan. We pray that you would continue to watch over them and, and uh, nurture their faith in you, Lord God, as you mature them into men of God. We pray, Father, for the continuing discipleship of our own hearts and minds as we uh, seek you, as we run to you, as we um, entrust our lives to you, uh, seeking you always uh, in, uh, through your word and through prayer. We pray for the ongoing ministry of Maranatha in that regard, that we would take seriously uh, our responsibility as, as parents, as friends, as followers of Jesus, to always not only grow in Christ, but to uh, share that, that knowledge, that love, that grace that you have uh, poured into us, as well as others, Lord God, who have taken the time uh, to share with us. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for men uh, like David's servants, Lord God, who are uh, obviously, as we read your word, fallible creatures, as are we, and we learn through uh, their relationship with you through the, the, the mistakes, the failings, and then their recovery and their restoration of them, how you are a, a God who is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. We call upon you now, O Lord God. We ask that your spirit would open our hearts and illuminate our minds to understand and comprehend your word. Help me, Father, to teach it clearly so that it can be understood and in being clearly understood, Father, uh, that we may apply it to your glory and for the good of our neighbor. Uh, this we ask and pray, Father, in Jesus' name uh, and in, for his sake. Amen. You know, we, uh, this is, this uh, series of psalms on the, from the rest of the psalms in the 80s uh, is sort of a continuation that was interrupted through um, the, the long series of Zechariah. So we're going to look at Psalm 86 this week, Psalm 87 next week. Uh, and then Psalm 89, uh, the last week in August. And I think looking ahead, probably start a series uh, on the Gospel of Mark come, uh, come the fall. So Psalm 86 is listed as a prayer of David. And David writes, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. 
All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, O Lord, have helped and comforted me. Psalm 86 is a a, a bold declaration of faith that expresses David's confidence that whatever situation he is in and, and from the tone of the psalm, he was in a very serious situation where he felt his life was being threatened, that because God is his shepherd, because God is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love toward all who call upon him, uh, that God will provide for David whatever David needs to get through the particular situation in which he finds himself. It's been said that what the heart learns, the mind remembers. And from his experience, because all the Psalms are written after the fact, if you will, after David has gone through some experience, some trial, some testing, some experience of joy, if the heart uh, teaches the mind, David will remember one thing very, very clearly, and he communicates it through the Psalm, is that God helps those who hope in him. That the source of David's confidence in God's not only ability, but God's willingness to help those who hope in him is grounded in the very character of God as good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to those who call upon him. You think about verse 5 as the, the theme, if you will, of this psalm. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. you, you think of the, the young men and women who will be going to college and maybe going away from home for the first time and experiencing a bit of homesickness or struggling perhaps to succeed in school or to make friends or to find a way of drawing closer to the Lord. And it's good to have that verse memorized. God is good. God is forgiving. God is abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. For parents who are anxious about their children going to college for the first time, or even raising their children and fearful that they themselves may not be parenting the way that they think they ought to be, and comparing themselves to others, it's a reminder, this verse, God is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. I can remember uh, sitting by my mother's uh, bedside as she was uh, dying from cancer and uh, her last words before she lapsed into a coma, typical of my mother's style and sense of humor. She said, you know, I I think your father and I did a good job raising both you boys. Your brother is a doctor, you're a minister. So I think we did a pretty good job. And then came the punchline. And if we made any mistakes, you're just going to have to work those out on your own. 
God is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to those who call upon him. You do as parents your very best. You do as parents your, your, your ultimate to do the best for your children and for their sake. You may make mistakes and you will make mistakes. And it's good to know that when you make mistakes, God is good, God is forgiving, and God is abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. That his grace is at work in the heart of your child, even in uh, your relationship. At work, in business, in your careers, all of those things are flowing out of this one foundational promise. That God is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. I don't know music very well. I'm not a musically inclined person, but I like to listen to music. And I think if you were to compare Psalm 86 to a, a jazz composition... Then verse 5, that I've been quoting to you quite often, verse 5 would be the head, or it would be the theme of the peace. God is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. Verses 10, verses 13, and verses 15 would then be variations on that theme. If you have ever listened to a jazz piece, listen to Take 5 by Dave Brubeck or any uh, significant piece of jazz, there's that one sort of central beat and then they, each musician will work off that. Maybe the bass player, then the keyboard player, then the saxophone player, whatever. And there are variations. And verses 10, 13, and 15 are variations on that. Variation number one in verse 10 is, You are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Good, forgiving, abounding, and steadfast love. You are great and wondrous. You alone are God. Variation number two in verse 13. You, great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. And the, ver- the third variation is, but you, O Lord, are uh, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then you need, you need, when you have a jazz piece, you need some way to bridge it back to the original theme. That's verse 17. But you, uh, um, show me a sign of your favor, writes David, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Why has God helped him? Why has God comforted him? Brings us back to verse 5. Because you, O Lord, are good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. So when you read Psalms, it's, it's good to sort of note these patterns. To be able to see that the, David writes in such a way as to not only state his central premise that God is good and forgiving and so forth, but then he restates that same theme as a way of bringing us into a relationship with him and a relationship with the Word, that there is a pattern here that is to develop. And as someone who is, who's personally experienced God's goodness, God's forgiveness, God's uh, steadfast love abounding toward him, David knows and trusts that what the heart has learned, the mind will remember, that God helps those who hope in him. And we look at the, the way the rest of the psalm turns to an outline. The, the theme, of course, is that God helps those who hope in him. And then we'll break it down this way. I'll wait for the slide to come up on the screen. God helps those who hope in him by answering their prayers God helps those who hope in him because he is great and does wondrous things. And then the next uh, section, God helps those who hope in him by inspiring them to fear him with all their heart. And he helps those uh, who hope in him by showing them his favor. I'll I'll make this outline available in the Wednesday uh, Travelers. So 
I know you're scrambling to write it down, so you'll, you'll get it <laughs> as well. So let's, let's just break it down this way. So God helps those who hope in him by answering their prayers. And here specifically, I want to focus on verse 7. Because David, this really is the, the, the sum, is it? When you are in a trouble, right? In my day of trouble, he says, I will call upon you. Why? Because God answers him. Right? There's, there's no busy signal, there's no customer service representative, there's no one saying all of our service people are busy at this time, average wait time is 15 minutes, which stretches on. David says, whenever I call upon you, you will answer me. And it's likely that David wrote this psalm after a period of living on the run, that he was in some kind of dire situation. It could have been uh, after the, uh, the coup attempt by his son Absalom, when David was forced to flee from Jerusalem. It could have been when David was forced to flee from Saul, King Saul, who not only threatened to kill him, but tried to kill him on several occasions. David knew what it was like to, uh, to live on the run, to be uh, fearful for his own life. Uh, and he trusted God on the basis of God delivering him through those situations that God would answer his prayers when he would cry out to him in the day of trouble. And so in addition to trusting God to protect him, uh, David also then knew God to be good and merciful and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. He, he knew as well, if you, we know the story of, of David, especially King David, he also knew what it felt like to need God's grace and forgiveness and abounding steadfast love to renew his mind, to repair his conscience, uh, and, and to revive his heart. Remember, this is David who writes Psalm 51, that when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan regarding his adultery with Bathsheba, David immediately responds, I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan assures him there in 2 Samuel the Lord has taken away your sin, you will not die. So when David, from that experience, writes here in Psalm 86, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy, he writes from the perspective of one who, being poor and needy, has received from God what he did not deserve, which was forgiveness, which was renewal, which was restoration, which was revival which was a, a repairing of, God's, of David's relationship with God. David prays, in other words, um, like a man who knows a thing or two because he's seen a thing or two. Uh, and he's done a thing or two. Not always the best either. Remember in Psalm 51, David pleads with God to forgive his adultery with Bathsheba, his role as well in plotting the murder of her husband, because he knows what it's like to experience the consequences of your bad choices. He knows that God can be trusted to forgive him, to be merciful, to abound in steadfast love toward one who is undeserving of that because he's committed uh, the worst of sins. It's the same reason why later on in the New Testament, Paul can write of himself, God's mercy was shown to me as a chief of sinners so that through my deliverance from my own sin, God may be demonstrated to be a gracious and merciful God, good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. David is not above using his own experience to validate the character of God. 
He knows it's not his testimony that is the convincing thing in the argument, but it's the character of God toward one like him who has transgressed the most serious of God's rules and God's commands. David knew that God had every right to punish him, to cast him away from his presence. But God didn't because he is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. So you put yourself in David's position. You've made a bad choice or maybe a series of bad choices. And maybe from your upbringing, you're convinced that that's it. There are, you only get a certain number of bad choices before God basically says, that's the end of the book on you, you're done. The Bible says otherwise, that he is infinitely good. Right? Because God is eternal, he is eternally forgiving toward those who call upon him because he is abounding in steadfast love to those who recognize their utter dependency and need of him for salvation, mercy, and forgiveness. David learned a hard lesson. He learned it the hard way. We can take comfort from that. There's an instruction there that when we learn hard lessons the hard ways by making bad choices, God is gracious to carry us through. We may experience the consequences of those bad choices, having to repair relationships and such, but there is always the, the foundation of the goodness, the forgiveness, and the steadfast love of God that enables us to work out and to work through those bad decisions. You think in terms of, you know, David says at the start there, I am godly. How can he say that? How can someone who who is implicit in adultery, implicit in plotting the murder of someone else, even as Solomon refers to him later on as a man of blood, how can David call himself godly if not by the grace of God who is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him? So we know from the new perspective of the New Testament we can call ourselves godly because our godliness does not come from anything resident within us or anything that we do, but our godliness, our holiness, our goodness comes from another. It comes from and through the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only someone who has sinned so badly and offended God so greatly can say, you, O Lord, are good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Uh, you, O oh Lord, really are my only hope for forgiveness, my only hope for renewal, my only hope for restoration, because that is the very character of God, to renew, to restore, to make whole that which we have damaged. So when David's hope sinks to its lowest point, what does he do? He doesn't run from God, but he looks to God as the source of hope, of renewal and restoration. He looks to the one who is eternally gracious and wholly forgiving, one powerful enough. David doesn't lift himself up from his own bootstraps. He can't do that. He's laying in the dust. His soul is bare before God. And so he just pleads, have mercy on me. And God, because he is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love, helps those who, help, who hope in him, forgives, restores, and renews. So sometimes we look at the, the chaos that is created by our bad choices, and then it's good to know 
that the character of God is one who is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. It's also worth noting, as I just mentioned almost in passing there, it's worth noting that when David sinned, he ran toward God, not away. Our, Our brother Randy reminded us of the need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. There are times when we feel that we have sinned so greatly we, we want to retreat from the light because we don't feel that we deserve to be in the light because we're such a terrible person that if we were a better Christian, a better follower of God, we would not be committing that when we fail to realize we're human and we will stumble. And in learning to follow Jesus, we're a lot like a toddler learning to walk for the first time. When a toddler walks and stumbles and falls, we don't say, no, you just stay there and learn, just keep crawling because that's going to keep you safe. No, we help them up we, and we help them regain their balance and they begin eventually to learn how to walk. Following Jesus is a lot like that. You're going to fall, you're going to stumble, you're going to make missteps. God knows that the more that you keep walking toward him, the important thing is the direction that you're headed in, which is toward him, not the distance you've traveled. He'll account for that distance at some point. But the thing is to always keep walking in that light and toward him. He also realizes, does David, that it's not necessarily the sincerity of his repentance. God, I really mean it this time. It's not even the passion with which he prays or even the precision of his words that is going to move God to be good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. It's solely God's character. So when we long for restoration, renewal, and revival, we can rely on God to provide it. When we yearn uh, to be delivered from trouble, from some besetting sin, we call upon the Lord, we can trust him to answer and to provide whatever we need to help us walk through that valley. Some of us go through tremendous seasons of dryness where the word doesn't seem to speak anything to us. Worship doesn't seem to feed our soul, that we, we just seem to be living in a fog. Or as I like to compare it, you're just sitting in traffic. I don't like to sit in traffic. I don't know about you. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of my precious time. I'm sitting, I can't do anything. I'm watching people there. And sometimes life is like that. And the whole purpose of sitting in traffic at times at least for me anyway, it's learning patience. I'm not the center of the world. I'm not the center of the universe. Someone may be in trouble. A car may be broken down, or it's just the fact that there's traffic and you have to deal with it. However it comes about, there is a moment in which you have to trust that God is doing something even when it seems like you're just sitting still and you're not getting anything, if you will, from him. And seasons of dryness are sometimes necessary to draw us Right? I remember when we lived in North Dakota, I'm not a farmer, didn't grow up on a farm, not many farms there in North Massapequa, Long Island, lots of suburban houses, no farms. And I remember talking to the farmers there, and, and they, they would always talk about having enough rain to grow their crops and things like that. And, and one of the farmers said, well, we, we don't want too much rain. Sometimes it's good for the, our crops, our wheat or our corn, to go through a, a month or two without water. And I asked him why. Was that going to damage the crop? He said, oh, no, no. When there's not enough water, the plant will 
strengthen its root system. The roots will go deeper into the soil in search of moisture, and it makes a stronger root system so that when the rain does come, the, the, they just flourish, they just grow. And I think sometimes when we think of our own dryness in our spiritual life, that's the time when everything is happening beneath the surface. We can't see it. But God is intending us to put down roots so that when the, the revelation comes or when the breakthrough comes, there is a flourishing. There is a, a, a true sense of revival, a true sense of joy. Remembering again, it's not at that point not the passion with which we pray, the eloquence or anything like that, but it's the character of God. That what, God, what moves God to hear our prayer is the fact that he is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. Um, the, the paradox of grace is that God draws us to him and that the more he draws us to him, the more exposed does our unholiness become because he is holy. And the reason why he exposes that is because we begin to understand the depth of his kindness toward us. That even though we don't deserve to be drawn to him, he's pulling us closer to himself, especially in seasons of dryness. So that it's his kindness, as Paul says, that leads us to repentance. That the more that his holiness exposes our unholiness, the more he overwhelms us with his grace. So that we'll trust him more and more. I think of the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus tells. Remember the Pharisee standing off by himself, praising God, thanking him. He's not like, first of all, he thanks God he's not like a woman. Then he praises God that he's not like other men and he goes through the list of things that he does. And then Jesus says, off by himself is a tax collector who can't even lift his eyes up to heaven. And he's beating his breast and he's saying, God, be merciful toward me, a sinner. That's the response of a, of a man who understands that the kindness of God draws us to him and that he does listen to the prayer of those who hope in him because he's good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love that what the heart learns, the mind remembers. So that's the, the, first, uh, the first point. The second th point to take note of is that God helps those who hope in him because he is great and he does wondrous things. And that's the middle part there in verse, uh, verses 8 through 10. And just paying attention um, uh, in the verse, uh, verse 9, All the nations you have made shall come to you and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And think about that for a moment. That you know, David also wrote Psalm 24. That psalm begins with a declaration of God's sovereignty. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. It's because the world belongs to the Lord and those who dwell in it that David makes this very bold statement about the expansive grace of God. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. Now, on the one hand, that may quite clearly mean they will all worship and recognize him, or, on the other hand, it may be what Paul talks about in Philippians 2, that when Christ comes back, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do it gloriously and graciously out of salvation. Some will do it in recognition that they are now in the presence of the one who is holy. Whatever David's intention here is, one thing is clear. 
that the nations that may have risen up against God will themselves bow the knee before him. He may even go so far as to adopt them into his family as his own covenant people. That this is how God does wondrous things. We saw this certainly in Zechariah, Isaiah. All the prophets talk about some kind of ingathering where the nations will be brought into covenant relationship with God. David didn't know how God would do this. We do. He does this through the power of the cross and through the preaching of the gospel. But then a question naturally arises. Why would God do this? Why would David pray a prayer like this? Why, if he's being hunted down by, let's say, these nations, why, if he is their enemy, why is he declaring that God would be gracious to them? Because David is a man who knows that God is ingracious to him. So there's an expansiveness to even David's understanding of God's grace, that it is not simply limited to those who are born into the covenant community, but it is to be shared and expressed outwardly to those beyond that community that they may be brought into it, that they would be welcomed into his presence. Remember, too, one of the amazing things about when you read Psalm 51, in light of Nathan's encounter, when, David, when Nathan tells David there in 2 Samuel, the Lord has put away your sin, you will not die, David doesn't make any sacrifice for sin. There's no animal that he offers for sacrifice. God just simply forgives him. And so it's interesting, just in, in looking back at Psalm 51, David notices this in, the, in the Psalm 51, 16 and 17. David says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, he says, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It, it's, it's just fascinating to me that you have this, if you will, this anticipation of what happens at the cross. That there's no sacrifice we can offer to God that will atone for our sin. There's nothing we can give to him by way of offering that's going to assuage our guilt and his wrath against us, except the death and blood of someone else in our place. And David seems to acknowledge that. And that's the same reason, the same mechanism by which God will draw the nations. That God's forgiveness is a a wonderful thing. It's It's a miraculous thing. It's because the Lord is good and forgiving. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. It's because God is abounding in steadfast love that he is graciously merciful to all who call upon him, even those that we would consider our enemies and outside the boundaries of the kingdom. David is the standard bearer for every sinner needing grace and forgiveness, love and mercy, restoration and renewal. And just as God forgave David, he will forgive every Jew and every Gentile who confesses their sin their need for grace, their need for, forgiveness, need for forgiveness, their need for love and mercy, restoration and renewal, who call upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So where are you this morning in relation to that? If you're inside the kingdom and maybe God is stirring you, awakening you to the fact that you haven't been following him as faithfully as you, you ought to, according to his word, there is the means by which God can draw you to himself 
His mercy, His grace. If you're outside of that, if you haven't had that faith relationship with Christ, here then is an opportunity for you to confess faith in Jesus. There's been something gnawing at your soul, something whispering in the back of your mind that's just missing. There's an emptiness, there's a vanity to life. You reach a level of success, and yet there's an emptiness there. The, the thing that you were achieving, you got. You have that. And it's like athletes who win a championship. It's like, well, that's what's next? I've reached the mountaintop, I've gotten to the pinnacle, but what comes after that? The Bible said a relationship with Christ comes after that. Right? An ongoing relationship with Him that continues to build and build and build and, and lasts into eternity. There's this opportunity for us to see in reality, what David only saw with the eyes of faith, that God is going to bring those outside, if you will, the kingdom into the kingdom. Uh, that God, uh, who helps those who hope in him, will wondrously transform even his enemies into his worshipers. That's what he did with us. Right? That even when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were by nature children of wrath, when we were under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, Christ died for us. So God helps those um, who hope in him uh, because he does great and wondrous things. And then the, the next, God helps those uh, who, who hope in him by inspiring them to fear him with all their heart. In the verses 11 uh, to 13, uh, David makes this wonderful prayer, beginning in verse 11. He says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Uh, that prayer in verse 11 is the fruit of what he says in verse 13. Right? Great is your steadfast love toward me, for you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Right? Sheol, this abode of the dead, um, this place of torment and great suffering, this shadowy place. David realizes that God has delivered him from that because he is good and loving and abounding in steadfast love. One who has been forgiven much, loves much. One who has been forgiven the, the greatest of sins can, by God's grace, become the greatest of lovers, the greatest of followers, the greatest of devotees to the one who has rescued him. David knows the, the depth to which he sank and the depth out of which God redeemed him. So we, again, we may feel that we have retreated, we have fallen as far away from God as we can, and yet the Scripture assures us that even out of those depths, God can redeem, God can renew, God can restore. Uh, David knows what it is like to have that moment when you have, in your heart of hearts, you are afraid that you have committed that sin that has broken forever your relationship with God. But David, knowing the sin from which God's grace had rescued him, asked God to do two things. He says, teach me your way that I may walk in your truth. This prayer, right, that prayer, teach me your way that I may walk in your truth. It's a good prayer. These, what's, what I'm going to say next, good prayers to pray as we seek to be restored, if you will, and renewed in our relationship with God. Teach me your way that I may walk in your truth. This is a prayer of someone who's sinned against God, who's been forgiven, and now wants to follow him more closely. 
This is the prayer of a man who has experienced the folly of our, our culture's mantra, which is, follow your heart. Right? What does your heart tell you? Right? Well, you're not Gandalf, right? Remember the Lord of the Rings, what does your heart tell you? Right? Gandalf says, Frodo lives. This is the man who knows you follow your heart, it's going to lead you into folly. You need to follow the voice of God. You need to follow the leading of the Spirit. This is the prayer of the man who suffered the consequences of his bad choices and was restored and was forgiven. He learned the meaning, did David, of Proverbs 14, 12, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its way leads to death. And yet God was gracious and gave him life. This is the prayer of a man who earnestly desires to worship God with an undivided heart. And that's the basis of the second prayer. Right? Unite my heart to fear your name. Or another translation has it, make me wholeheartedly committed to the fearing of your name. To fear God's name. I have a healthy respect for his holy character. Not only his goodness, not only his forgiveness, not only his abundance of steadfast love, but for his holiness and even for his justice, for his wrath as well for the peace that he offers, for the wholeness, the shalom that he brings us, to fear God wholeheartedly with an undivided heart is the goal of every follower of Christ. It's, it's what we long to do. And part of our discipleship is learning how to follow him with an undivided heart. It's why I think we stumble at times because we realize we haven't, but we're on the way to doing that. The steadfast love of God it's his wholehearted commitment to his covenant and to the upholding of his name and to the upholding of his people who have committed themselves to him. It's one of, the, one, of my, one of my favorite words in Hebrew, this word that is translated steadfast love in our English Bible, chesed. It's God's covenant faithfulness, his chesed. It is, it's unbreakable, unshakable. It's, it's just undeniable in its grip that once God has entered into relationship with us and we with him, that covenant cannot be broken and it will not be broken by nothing that we could ever do. And that's what draws David back to him. That's what keeps David moving forward rather than wallowing in the valley. When he prays, he writes Psalm 23, that as I walk through the valley of the shadow, David understands, I'm walking through it. This is not where I'm living. This is not my permanent home, this valley. I'm walking through it. Why? Because God's covenant faithfulness is drawing me, pulling me through, leading me through, giving me the ability and the hope that there is going to be an end to this valley and that we'll begin the ascent to higher ground. We'll be able to see from where I came and now where God wants me to go. David understands the necessity of following God with a whole heart. But the only way you get a whole heart is to have a clean heart, to have a renewed heart. That's why he prays as he does in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Because he knew he couldn't love God with a divided heart, a heart that was unsteady and unclean. That the only way David could love God with a united heart was to ask God to give him a clean heart. And to get a clean heart, David had to ask God for a new heart. And a new heart is God's gift to everyone who calls upon him for grace and forgiveness, love and mercy, restoration and renewal.
Why? Because God is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. And then the last point, God helps those who hope in him by showing them his favor. In verses 14 through 17, David just wraps up his, his thought here. Um, it says, uh, <clears throat> O God, uh, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do uh, not set you before them. Now, it's likely we're not going to be chased by a band of ruthless men. So allow me, if you will, to view this verse sort of figuratively. You may not have physical enemies that are pursuing you, but I think each one of us can be pursued at times by memories of bad choices that we have made, opportunities that we feel we have missed to improve ourselves or we could have done better, and we are haunted by these things at times when we don't expect to be haunted by them. Maybe in the middle of the night something wakes up or you've had a dream that has just awakened you or has, has annoyed you because it has drug up a memory that you thought long buried. And immediately doubts begin to creep in. Well, the, the solution to those doubts is to trust in the favor of God. To have the assurance that he is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, shortly after uh, J.I. Packer died in 2020, uh, the Gospel Coalition <clears throat> provided a list of 40 memorable quotes uh, from Packer. And there was one in particular that stood out that I thought was relevant to this passage. And Packer writes this. He says, There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God, and God has known them. And that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and forever. The assurance of God's favor is what motivated David to ask God to help him. David was in trouble. <clears throat> he was surrounded by dangerous men filled with dangerous and deadly intentions. We may be haunted by thoughts and imaginings, or we may in fact be in uh, physical danger. David needed God to deliver him, and God did. That David knew God is a good thing. The better thing is that God knew David. God knew everything about David. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows everything about me. The good, the bad, the ugly, the holy, and the unholy the fine and the not-so-fine, the kind and the unkind. And yet, knowing me like that, knowing my own fallibility, he holds me in the firmest of grip. He holds all of us who have put our hope in him in that firm grasp. Not to squeeze us, if you will, but to assure us that he will not let us go. He will not yield us to our past. He will not yield us to the bad memory. He will not yield us to the mistakes because his goodness, his forgiveness, his steadfast love has atoned for them and has covered them over. Knowing how much God had forgiven him, David trusted God to help him. Knowing how much God loved him filled David with courage, with hope, with peace, and with the steadfastness to continue on. Which is why I think, 
At the end, the psalm ends with a very, very bold request as well as a statement of fact. David ends the psalm with, it's not really a request, it's actually more of a command. Show me your favor. Show me a sign of your favor. This is like Moses standing before God on the mountain saying, show me your glory. What an audacious command. What an audacious thing to say of God. Show me a sign of your favor. Why? Well, because the next statement that David makes is because you, O Lord, have helped me. You have shown favor to me. This is going to be a great embarrassment to my enemies who want to see me fall, who delight in my mistakes. Show them through providing for me your deliverance that you are a God who can be trusted and that you are a God above all gods, that the gods that they serve, whether they are made of stone or clay or stock options, or reputation, that those are all false things that offer false hope built on false promises. But here is a place where I can stand. Here is one who holds me firmly in the palm of his hand, never to let me go. But the heart learns, the mind remembers. God helps those who hope in him. David is basing all of this on his experience of God as being gracious and merciful. We're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. We read with David, show me a sign of your favor. Here it is, the bread and the cup. Show me evidence of your mercy, O God. Here it is, the body and blood. Show me some evidence of your grace and steadfast love that abounds forever. Here it is in the blood of the eternal covenant displayed for us in the sacrifice of Christ by which we are forgiven. How do we know this? How can we be sure of this? How can we know for certain? Because we live in an age, particularly among even people of faith, but in our own culture, that doesn't like certainty. People are uncomfortable with certainty. But without certainty, we have no hope. And this thing is certain, this truth is certain, that God helps those who hope in him. Because the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5.8, this we know, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And again, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is certain. That's the pledge of these elements. Not only does God help those who hope in him, but he also forgives those who hope in him. And the assurance of forgiveness is, is a miraculously wonderful and graciously liberating fact. It's a blessing that comes from us from God. And just one last thing that included among those quotes that I cited from J.I. Packer is this powerful statement. Because sometimes we, we still struggle with a sense of assurance. We still struggle with, does God really love me? And am I going to stay close to him? And am I going to follow him? Am I going, or am I going to fall away? Packer writes this, your faith will not fail while God sustains it. Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. Let me read one more time. Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You, I, are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. These elements 
are proof of that resolution. That God, beloved, dearly beloved, God is resolved to hold you. Always. Because he helps those who hope in him. Because he is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. Let's pray. Father, we are yours by grace. We are yours because you are merciful and good and kind. And you are abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Teach us, O Lord God, to walk in your ways, unite our heart to yours, that we might always follow you, and that we would always trust you to be good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.